Castle Biosciences is a proud sponsor of Fred and its residents with innovative approaches to improving patient care. Castle Biosciences is transforming the treatment of dermatological cancers by offering clinically actionable molecular tests that improve patient outcomes. For more information, visit castletestinfo.com. You're listening to Cutaneous Miscellaneous, the Dermatology Residence Podcast. Welcome back to Cutaneous Miscellaneous. I just came off a busy call weekend that ended with a very interesting consult. On Sunday night, my pager went off and I thought to myself, gosh, another consult from the ED. But I looked down at my pager and the callback number was from Ringling Brothers in Barnum and Bailey Circus. So I called the number back and the ringleader of the circus answered and said, doctor, thanks for calling. I have a very unhappy clown here with a bad skin problem. What's your diagnosis? I told him staff scalded skin, no question. If you don't get the reference, you have to listen to our previous episode on medical legal principles that dermatology residents have to know about. We have another spectacular episode today, and I'd like to welcome Dr. Dawn Sammons as our guest on episode five. So welcome, Dr. Sammons. Thanks. I appreciate that. Really nice to have you here. Let's jump right into it. We're going to start off with some quick board review on hair loss and hair disorders. And first, I want to talk about androgenetic alopecia, which in men, this is uh, seen with an increase in dihydrotestosterone expression. This plays a role. We have the Norwood Hamilton classification for men, which is frontotemporal hairline recession, and the Ludwig scale in women, which is progressive thinning from the vertex of the scalp. Histologically, we see vellus hairs and miniaturized hairs. And our FDA-approved treatments are minoxidil and finasteride. So, Dr. Sammons, what are some keys to this condition on the board exams for dermatology? Well, I think when you think about it from a board review standpoint, we need to think about that androgen focus, um, as you spoke of with the DHT, and that that's our main factor that we're seeing that's resulting in those loss of hairs. You know, when we think about these patients, we know that these patients are at somewhat higher risk, both men and women, to actually present with, in women, polycystic ovarian syndrome, or PCOS. And in men, we can see some similar findings, um, especially with our younger men. So when we have our men who progress and start with um, having androgenic loss as early as, say, let's 18 or earlier 20s, they're at higher risk for metabolic syndrome. So those are some of the associations we can see that sometimes can be present in these patients. Great. Really love those tips. Yeah, I think PCOS is something to really watch out for. can certainly show up on a board exam question. The next uh, non-scarring alopecia I want to touch on is alopecia areata, very common. This is uh, autoreactive cytotoxic CDA-positive T-cells that target the hair follicle. And we see round patches of, again, non-scarring hair loss. The follicular ostea is visible. Sometimes it's associated with regular nail pitting and trachonychia. And on dermoscopy, we see exclamation point hairs. I know this disease is getting a lot of uh, press these days with a new FDA-approved medication. So again, Dr. Sammons, tell me about a couple things that you would expect in the exam with this disorder. Well, alopecia areata, we have to know about some of the associations, and that's probably one of the big ones. So we do see alopecia areata occurring more frequently in our patients with Down syndrome. Um, we can see a higher rate of patients with atopic dermatitis, like in planus, some of the autoimmune diseases. So there is definitely an association with vitiligo as well. And so I think those associations are a common one that we sometimes have to think about. As far as therapy, you know, there's always the discussion about what's first-line therapy. And for 
most patients, we're really looking at interlesional steroids as our first-line therapy, if possible. In dealing with children, obviously, we, we typically will start with some of the topical steroids, treating that peribulbar, um, that swarm of bees we speak of that occurs around the hair bulb and that results in the loss of those hairs. Sure. That, 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 that's a great point. As we all know, baricitinib was recently FDA approved. And I was reading the package insert the other day. It's also FDA approved for inpatient COVID, which I thought was very surprising. So <laughs> if you have a patient who has COVID and has some hair loss, then you can treat, you know, k- kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. Uh, next, let's just touch on some um, scarring alopecias. And the scarring, as we know, is absence of the follicular ostea plus hair loss. So CCCA we see more in um, women of African-American descent. It's associated with chemical relaxers, hot combs, traumatic hairstyles. And the scarring starts in the vertex of the scalp, then spreads centrifugally. And we want to stop the traumatic hair care practices and treat with topical or interleisure corticosteroids, although there's no great treatments for this condition. So I would imagine the exams are going to ask more about morphology and how it looks histologically. Would that, that be right? That's true. I think the big key here is it is a scarring hair loss. So on, you know, when we look at it histologically, we find that complete loss of the follicular unit. You know, the hard part is board questions were written a couple of years ago, and we're now really looking at CCCA as being more polygenetic, and that we know that there are situations where it is not associated with hair care practices. And so it's truly an inflammatory disease that is happening in these patients. So Hair care practices are the most common, um, but we also have to think of that there are cases of patients who present with this who are Caucasian, have blonde hair, that's uncommon. So your most common expected patient is going to be a middle-aged African-American woman, and we're always going to think about those hair care practices. But do know that that there are um, multifactorial things that can lead to this. Absolutely. And as you said, you know, if the question, Sam, has middle-aged African-American female with hair loss, then you're going to want to kind of start to think about this. Just keep it in mind. And finally, you want to touch on lichen plano pilaris. This is mostly seen in middle-aged Caucasian females. We have scattered patches of perifollicular erythema, scaling and scarring can be associated with some skin and nail LP findings. And there's many treatments, uh, oral antimalarials, topical oral or interleisure corticosteroids. We can use methotrexate, cyclosporin, acetretin. So again, give me a couple tips on this for the exam as well. So I think one of the big keys is we're seeing a huge rise in the number of patients who are presenting with um, lichen plano pilaris, the most common variant being frontal fibrosing alopecia, where it starts at the at the frontal um, hairline and it sort of works back almost like you would think of a wildfire. And so that is truly the most common type. So please understand that FFA or frontal fibrosing alopecia is actually a subtype of lichen plano pilaris. As you said, most common in women can present in men or in women uh, who are younger, but it's mostly postmenopausal women. And I think, you know, realistically, the big question that we're going to get from a morphologic standpoint, what you would see clinically is you get that perifollicular erythema encrusting can be associated with pruritus or itching. So patients often, you know, present with that and it is absolutely progressive. So I think the big key of everything we've talked about is really separating out those scarring hair losses being that the hair's follicles themselves are gone. There is no getting those hair follicles back from the non-scarring types of hair loss, such as telogen effluvium, alopecia areata, where with appropriate treatment, we can regrow that hair. Great. We went over some really great tips. I hope everyone listened because these tips are hair today and gone tomorrow. (laughs) Okay, that was bad. (laughs) I'm still working on my jokes, okay? I'm still working on my jokes here, one step at a time. 
Again, Dr. Sammons, I'm so happy to have you here. You know, you've been a program director for many years, and I want to talk about learning and teaching as a dermatology resident, okay? We just started the new academic year, so I want to talk about how to learn as a resident. And then for the residents that have been here for a couple of years and the fellows, I want to talk about how to teach because both of these things are so important. So again, new academic year, first year dermatology resident just finished their medicine internship. They come in, they think Derm's going to be great, and all of a sudden they get, you know, Bologna, Wolverton, uh, Elston, <laughs> you know, reading, you know, multiple chapters due by tomorrow. So can you give me some tips or what have you seen that's worked well for your, your residents in the past, how to handle all this information that's thrown at you in the first couple of weeks, a couple of months of residency? Well, it really is sort of like starting medical school all over again, because everything you learned in medical school prepared you to be a family doctor. It didn't prepare you to be a dermatologist. And so it's the it's the foundation that we need to work from, but you have to learn all this new information. So there is a lot of information, a lot of text that we go through uh, throughout the residency program. I think the big key that I tell all first years, like I tell my first years every single year is start with finding a board review book that you're going to use use as sort of your depository for all of your information. So as you go through, you have one board review book that ultimately you're going to put all your notes in. So when you're reading your chapters in Bologna, you're following along in your board review book and you're adding anything that you think is important. Um, it's a quick way so that when you go into didactics and to you know, book review with your seniors, you can do a quick review before and be prepared for you know those questions and things that come up. I think the other thing is you start building on that information so that when you get towards the end of residency, you have one source from which to study from. So you really do have to start thinking about boards from day one and the sense of being organized. On the flip side, what I always tell them is you have to take a deep breath. This is three years long. We do not expect you to remember everything in year one. The first six months is super overwhelming. It all sort of sounds the same. And so I spend a lot of time telling residents, as long as you're putting the time in, you really just have to be gentle with yourself and know that you're going to review almost every single textbook three times. Now, some programs like to do Bologna and then move to Andrews and that sort of thing. But you're going to review the exact same information three times over three years. And so there's plenty of time to learn the information. All right. So don't get overwhelmed. You know, obviously, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And, you know, the best way to do well on the exams, you can't really cram for them, right? You have to do three years of studying. You know, you have to make sure you're keeping up with the reading and just absorbing knowledge as you go along, right? And again, take it day by day. You don't have to know everything day one. So I love that advice. That's right. Thank you, Dr. Sammons, for this great information, but let's pause and hear from our sponsor. Castle Biosciences is a proud supporter of this podcast and its residents by supporting continuing education and collegial discussions. Castle provides clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. For more information, visit castletestinfo.com. How about integrating academic knowledge with clinical practice and clinical skills? Because derm is both. You know, it's an intellectual specialty, but we're a procedural specialty too. And sometimes it's kind of difficult to, to mend those two together. So any tips or any advice on that for new residents? Well, I think one of the big things I tell all my residents is when you're working clinically, when you're in the clinic with your faculty, don't be afraid to say why. I think one of the things that happens is we as faculty, we get used to doing things a certain way. And Durham is really one of the medical specialties where it's an art form. We all do it different. There are a million different ways to, you know, 
numb up a patient before we do a biopsy or to do a shave biopsy. Some people like to do use 15 blades. Some people use, you know, blue blades. We use Wilkinson blades. There's a million ways to do it. So the one of the ways you learn is ask your faculty, why do you do it that way? Not in a challenging manner, but ask why, because that helps you understand the reasoning behind why one person chooses one method or one treatment over another, because there's a hundred different ways to treat acne. And as a resident, you work with so many different faculty and everybody does it differently. And I think that is difficult. When you're in medicine, you know, there's these like guidelines for how to treat hypertension. And so everybody sort of does the same thing. That is not what we find in dermatology. Everybody does it slightly different. And so you have to ask why to learn the art. Right. And what's great about that is when, you know, residents finish practice, you know, they're an amalgamation of all their attendings, right? And they take what they like here from surgery, how someone treats acne, and then they become their own person, which I think is a really amazing process. So really love those tips. How about uh, teaching? Now, I want to move into teaching. You know, I love being a dermatologist and I love teaching and I love getting medical students excited. So I have a medical student who's on dermatology for one week. So how can you get them excited about this field and teach them in one week? Um, well, you know, hopefully most of the residents that have come in, they appreciate what needs to happen for teaching. I think most of my residents, at least, enjoy feeling like they're finally at a place, you know, as a chief, that they can help teach someone else. Or even as that first year derm resident, when you have the third year, you know, medical student on rotation, there's already so much that you can teach them. And I think, you know, it's like, what we always say, learn one, do one, teach one. And that that is, you know, it seems so old school, but it is so true. And so I really push my residents, you know, you, by the time you're a first year and you're six months in, I hope to goodness, everyone's capable of doing punch biopsies, shave biopsies. So when you have the opportunity to teach someone else, now's the time to let teach them how to do it. You learn from the ways that you were taught. We were all taught in ways sometimes that weren't ideal. And we've learned, you know, ways that other, that some of our faculty and preceptors have taught us that worked really well for us. So part of that is taking from that and using that, finding your own style when you're with, you know, other learners and giving them the opportunity. It's also a great opportunity to challenge yourself and see if you actually know what you're talking about. I was going to say, yeah, you know, sometimes when you teach something, then you learn it even better, right? Because you have to know Always. It. you can't stutter. You can't say, let me look this up. You know, you got to be cool, calm, collected and be like, you know, this is the way it is. You know, this is the answer. And, and teaching is the best way to do that. So can you give me a couple more tips on, again, how senior residents and fellows can effectively teach their junior colleagues? Sure. I think one of the hardest things um, for senior residents and fellows is not teaching the information. I think that comes naturally by the time you move into a senior a chief role. You, you understand how didactics roles. You understand how to sort of teach someone else. I think the difficulty comes in precepting and giving feedback that may not always be positive. Because I think it's natural. We don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. But I think one of the biggest keys is learning how to very appropriately have constructive but critical conversations with our fellow residents. So, you know, one I, perfect example. Um, we just talked about all this reading that has to happen. So one of the keys that chiefs have to do is if we're in didactics and there is maybe a new resident who clearly hasn't been doing their week, their reading week after week, 
before that resident gets too far and gets too far behind, we're not doing anyone any favors if that chief doesn't pull them aside and have a gentle conversation about, look, you're falling behind. I'm watching you fall behind. And here's the, here's the ramifications of that. We really need you to be on this team and to deliver. And so I think the big key is if that's not something you're comfortable with, find a faculty member that you feel does that well and ask for some mentorship. Um, as a program director, that is one of the things that I work with them on is, is really giving them some confidence in providing that key critical feedback, both positive and negative feedback. Because as learners, we have to have that. It's a great point. You know, I was reading uh, Sports Illustrated a few years ago, and there was an article on Tiger Woods' swing coach. And I thought to myself, Tiger Woods needs a swing coach. This is the best golfer in the world. But we always need p- people to teach us and give us feedback as time goes on, right? Uh, and I really like what you said about, you know, giving um, constructive feedback for someone who's maybe not doing that well. One of my mentors, I really liked how he did it. And he would tell people, look, I care about you. I care about your education. You know, I want you to do well. And I'm seeing that you're falling behind in the reading and I don't want that, you know. So I would recommend you do X, Y, Z because I really care about you doing well. And then the person's not going to be upset. They're going to be like, this guy cares about me and, you know, they're going to take the criticism. It'll be well received. So um, how about teaching and counseling patients? It's a whole other uh, topic, <laughs> but, you know, because we have to teach our patients about these things. And somebody says, what's psoriasis? And I go, uh, it's immune. And, you know, I, I forgot. And, uh, you know, it's, so how can we do better, a better job of that? Well, I think the big one, it, that's a challenge. It, and yeah. that's a skill set that people do not possess on day one. So I think some people are more comfortable having certain conversations with patients than other people. That's just personality type. But there is there is a skill that comes over the course of medical education, especially like Durham residency, where one learns the appropriate way to talk to a patient. The key is talk to them like you were talking to your brother or your sister who is not a doctor. If they are, that doesn't count. Um, To a family member who's not not a physician, not in healthcare. And that means try your best to leave the medical terms at the door. And that's really tough because we spend so much time in the hallway trying to give very rapid, concise, you know, uh, reports about the patient we just saw using medical terms. Then we flip you to talk to a patient and say, okay, you have to say essentially all of that, but without a medical term. And, you know, in patients, that's one of the key things. I think the other key thing about educating patients is actually not talking. It's listening. I think we often, especially when we're new, we get in there and we just want to ramble and we don't actually listen to what the patient wants from us. So sometimes the patient will tell you if they want more information, um, especially if we give them an opportunity. I think sometimes we provide too much information and patients are overwhelmed. And I see that happen sometimes where, you know, the patient really is getting a little overwhelmed and maybe they're, they're uncomfortable. And so some of it is listening and knowing where to provide that education. Is the patient worried that this could potentially, whatever we're diagnosing them with, could be something dangerous or cancerous or contagious, you know, those are things we have to look for. But that's listening as much as anything. Right. You know, I had a mentor tell me you have one mouth and two ears for a reason. (laughs) 
That you know, is so true. My grandmother always said that. Yeah. And, you know, with my example with psoriasis before, of course, I know, you know, what causes psoriasis. But my, my point was uh, sometimes patients, we don't know what their level of understanding is. And I had a patient, I started saying psoriasis involves the immune system. And they just said, what's the immune system? You know, so <laughs> I, I really like how you said to start off very simple, no medical terms. And if they want more, listen to them and, you know, see how they react. Are they, are they looking inquisitive? Are they, have, do they have a blank stare? Are they on the edge of their seat hanging on every word? And you can ask them, you want me to tell you some more about this? So, but it's very good to start with simple terms, very simple, and just ask them what, what more they want. So that's great. Dr. Samuels, we're almost out of time. And with, this is such a great episode. We can have a whole other episode on this. So I think we learned a lot. Really appreciate, again, you being here and your, um, all your experience as a program director really helped us out a lot today. But I want to ask you one more personal question. And I know you practice in Ohio. I was, I was born in Ohio, but I lived there until I was like one years old, so I don't remember it. But my parents always talked about Grater's Ice Cream and Skyline Chili. So which one do you like more and why? Oh, Grater's Ice Cream, of course. Grater's Ice Cream, okay. I, I mean, who doesn't want ice cream? Um, Skyline Chili is pretty, pretty special to those of us in Ohio. But um, yeah, ice cream by far. F- favorite flavor? Uh, mint chocolate chip, without a doubt. Oh, that, that's one of my favorites, too. I think I'll have some of that tonight. <laughs> Well, thank you again, Dr. Sammons, and hope to uh, see you again soon. Take care. All right. Thanks, Nick. Castle Biosciences is a proud sponsor of Fred and its residents with innovative approaches to improving patient care. Castle Biosciences is transforming the treatment of dermatological cancers by offering clinically actionable molecular tests that improve patient outcomes. For more information, visit castletestinfo.com.